Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones, in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with your joy in in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. If you're anything like me, when you're looking to buy something new, whether it's a small thing or a larger thing as a purchase, uh, you will check online reviews of what you're going to buy. And if you know me, I take that process fairly seriously. And I like to dig into all the different things that have been said about a given product before uh, I hand over the cash and either purchase it locally or wait for it to be delivered. But then when it arrives, there's often a gap, isn't there, between what you have read in the online reviews and the product as you hold it in your hands. There's a gap between what you've read has been written about it and what you experience in reality. And there are times when it can seem like there is a big gap between the reality of our spiritual lives as God's people and the things that we read believers declaring in God's word. And Psalm 16 is perhaps one of those parts of God's word where we might particularly feel that way, that there is this gap between what we read and what we experience ourselves. And perhaps as you heard Psalm 16 read, you felt that way as you heard phrases like, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices, or you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Because those verses sound so different from your experience daily as a Christian. Because there are times when, well, your heart feels as dry as a Sahara desert. Now, the difference between those written reviews and the reality of the products is that this is God's word, isn't it? And all that God says is true and right and good. 
So, the question we need to ask is, how is it we can experience the joy that David speaks of again and again and again in Psalm 16? And the first thing we need to see is that there is a kind of joy that comes almost instantaneously in life. That's the kind of joy that we might feel as we receive some unexpectedly good news. Or perhaps when we meet a, a distant special friend who surprises us with a, with a visit. It's kind of an instant joy that you feel when something like that happens. And that is joy. But it's not the kind of joy that David is speaking about in this psalm. Or perhaps more accurately, it's not the route to joy that David goes through in finding joy in this psalm. Because the joy that's described in verses 9 and 11 is a joy that comes about by going on a journey. And it's a journey that we are led on, taken on by the hand of our God as we see and embrace things that are real and true, which are the source of unending joy. But God brings David to this joy by taking him on a journey through this psalm. This morning, with God's help, we're going to go on that same journey. Because the heights of verses 9 and verse 11, we get to those by going on the path that God lays out in the rest of this psalm. And so, with God's help through his Spirit, we are going to walk through the journey to joy that David goes through, that we might know something of that joy also. And there are three things I'd like us to see today. First of all, we're going to see that the journey to joy starts with our struggles. It starts with our struggles. In there, in the first line, verse 1 of the psalm, we, we read David crying out to God, seeking his protection, and he says, keep me safe, my God. Now, we don't know what was happening in David's life that led to him uttering that cry to God. Perhaps it was he was in the middle of one of those times when Saul was trying to kill him, or perhaps it was during one of the many other times when David knew he needed God's protection. But whatever the situation, which in the providence of God, we don't know exactly what it was, the key thing is that the starting point of David's journey was a struggle. And God uses trouble in David's life to turn his heart towards the Lord. Because David is doing what every mature believer should do, which is that every day, and particularly during times of trouble, he is turning to God. And asking for God's help isn't a sign of weakness or immaturity as a believer. You know, our world values independence, doesn't it? We want people who will be self-sufficient and strong. But that isn't maturity as far as a relationship with God is concerned. Maturity is seen in growing dependence upon the Lord. And a growing Christian who increasingly knows their own weakness will also increasingly cry out to God. 
because the Lord uses our troubles to turn our hearts to Him. He allows and even brings hardship into our lives to lead us on this journey to joy. Because when we call out to Him, when we cry out to Him, He answers by showing us more of who He is. And that's the second thing that we come to see as we work through this psalm together. The journey to joy starts with our struggles, so we turn our hearts towards the Lord. And then secondly, and here is our most substantial point, number two, that it is signposted by who God is. And here we're going to look at verses one to eight together. Sorry, one to seven together, because there in those verses, David reflects upon who God is to him. And again and again, we read David making affirmations about God, about who God is. And those affirmations are like signposts on this journey to that destination of knowing the joy that's there at the end of the psalm. Now, very soon as a family, we'll be headed on our annual camping trip to St. Ives. And we know that that we know that journey so well that as we drive down in the car, there are various markers that signposts that we're making progress on our journey. The first one that perhaps we recognize really well is a Portbury Docks just south of Bristol. See on the right as you continue down the motorway. And then as we get to the end of the motorway, there is the point where it branches and you have to take the branch to the right on the A30 just on the left of Exeter. As we keep going down that very, very long road of the A30, right to the end there towards St. Ives, we come to the Hale Roundabouts. Just 15 minutes, we tell the boys, until we reach the campsite. And the Lord does something like that for us in this psalm, because what he does is he gives us markers on a journey, and those markers are various aspects of who he is. He starts in, in verse 1, there in the second line of verse 1, where, where David affirms that God is his secure refuge. David turns to God because only God can keep him safe in the midst of trouble. That's the first signpost of who God is. But then God is David's refuge because of the second thing that God reveals about who he is, that God is the sovereign king of David's life. And that's the second marker there for us at the start of verse 2. Where David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Now you'll notice that in that verse, David uses two different words for God. And they are both translated Lord. But the first one he uses is in capital letters, which means that in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. And it speaks of God's commitment to his people. But then the second way God addresses, sorry, David addresses God is at the end of that first line in verse 2, that you are my Lord, where only the first letter is capitalized. And that's because that is not Yahweh, it's a different word in the Hebrew, it's Adonai. And that means master. That means my, my Lord and master in that sense. And, and what is going on here is that David knows his weakness he, he sees in that sense his enemies drawing near. And so where does he look? He looks to his Lord and Master, knowing with confidence that God will defend him and protect him as his Lord and Sovereign. 
So God is David's refuge. God is David's Lord and sovereign, which then brings us to the third signpost. A further aspect of who God is to David when David affirms that he is our unrivaled treasure. This is what comes out in verses 2 to 6 in many ways. And this is really what we might say is a central thing that David sees about God in this psalm. It begins in in verse 2 where he affirms that apart from God, he has no good thing. Apart from you, I have no good thing. That means that all good things come from the Lord and also that ultimately only God is good and only God is truly good in that sense. And so so David delights in God as his treasure and because he delights in God as his treasure in verse 2, he then can in verse 3 delight in God's holy people because those who know the Lord... Those who follow the Lord are the noble ones who bring great happiness to David. And because God is David's treasure, David will not live with divided loyalties. And so in verse 4, as he looks around at those who do not know the Lord, what does he see? Well, he sees the life of misery that comes from living without God. He speaks of those who run after other gods. That's anyone and anything other than the Lord God. And what do they know? Well, David says they only know suffering. They suffer more and more. Because those who live serving other false gods, who are not gods, find themselves enslaved to something which isn't good and which only offers, if any happiness, only fleeting happiness. And ultimately, in that eternal sense, in serving those false gods, will bring suffering. Suffering of judgment that comes from a life not knowing the Lord. And so David says, he's clear in his resolve, isn't he? I will not follow them. David is not a man who is going to hedge his bets. He's not a man who's going to live with one foot in the camp of serving the Lord, and one foot in the camp of serving other false gods. He is going to be totally committed to serving and seeking the Lord. Because in verse 5, he declares that God alone is his portion and his cup. That's one of the many times in the Psalms where you get an echo of things in the rest of the Scriptures. And that idea of God being David's portion is a reference back to what happened when the Lord's people, Israel, entered the promised land and when it was divided up there between each of the tribes, the big groups, as they entered the promised land and they were each given sections of the land, each of them received a specified area except one tribe. Which tribe was it? The Levites. And the Levites were told that they were not going to be given any portion in the land because who was to be their portion? God. God alone was to be their portion. And so David is picking up that idea and saying, Lord, you are my portion, because the key thought here is that God is David's treasure. Which means that as David thinks about God, in in that poetic sense, if he thinks about the Lord poetically, figuratively, as if God were the portion of land that he has been given, 
he can say there in verse 6 that the boundary lines, those markers that signify David's portion, which is the Lord, have fallen for him in where? Pleasant places. Because God is David's inheritance, because God is David's treasure. And so he can say he has this delightful inheritance. Last weekend on Saturday, we celebrated my parents' 50th wedding anniversary. All the family were there, and we had a wonderful meal. We had roast beef, we had Yorkshire puddings. We had roast potatoes. We had purple sprouting broccoli and carrots. I saw someone frown there. I won't say who it was. And after that great meal, there were no less than three pudding choices. Ginger sponge, eaten mess, and fruit crumble. I forget the fruit because I only ate two of them and I was full. (laughs) But it was a great meal. It was, well, one of, one of the finest meals I've ever had. And all the rest have been cooked by Naomi. (laughs) Now, whilst we might... (laughs) So the picture that we might have here is of David there, stood. And and, and if, if you don't like purple sprouting broccoli, that's fine. But whatever is there on your perfect meal table... Okay, imagine it in your mind's eye. David is there looking out over that great feast of food, and he reaches out to God. And he says, God, before anything else in all the world, you are my treasure. You are all that I want. You are all that I need. You are my great delight. And friends, this is, this is one of the many ways in which the Psalms remind us of all that God is to us. And so we might go to many of the Psalms. We could have quoted many, but just one. Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26 express this same thought. Because what does the psalmist say there? Who, am I, sorry, who have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. All these passages remind us that to have God is to have everything of lasting worth, and to not have God is to have nothing of lasting worth. If God gave you great health, but you didn't have himself, Would you be satisfied? No. If God gave you plenty of money such that you wanted for nothing, but he didn't give you himself, would you be satisfied and content? Not at all. If you got to heaven and you found it to be the most wonderful place, free from sin and full of good things, but you did not have God himself there, would it really be heaven to you? No, it wouldn't. Because there is nothing greater than knowing God. 
because God is our greatest treasure. And so as God reveals all this to David, that, that he is his refuge, he is his sovereign Lord, he is his unrivaled treasure, David comes to acknowledge one more thing in verse 7, that God is his trusted counsellor. That in all that God has been saying to him to this point, that, that God has been guiding him and directing him and reminding him of all that he is to David. And so David can say that the Lord is, is my counsellor who counsels me. And the Lord has taught David's heart so that David's heart can pour truth back into David's soul, even in the depths of the night. And so we have these four signposts about the character of God to take David on this journey that brings him to that wonderful affirmation that begins in verse 8, where he says, My eyes are always on the Lord, and with God at my right hand, at my side, I will be steady and secure. He knows his security that comes from knowing God. And then, with all those markers of who God is, that leads David to know this deep joy as he proclaims those words in verse 9. That my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. And what a contrast that verse is to verse 1, friends. I mean, think of it there in verse 1. David is in need of, of safety. And then verse 8 and verse 9, he is totally secure and he is full of joy. What's changed? Well, there has been no change in David's situation. The danger still remains. The change that has come about has come about within David as he draws near to God and finds strength in the Lord as the Lord shows him more of who he is. It is this revelation of God that brings about the change as the reality of God's being fills David's soul. And friends, we need to receive counsel from the Lord like David does within this psalm. God uses our troubles to teach us dependence so that we cry out to him. And as we look upon him and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, he changes our hearts. Because the warmth of the goodness of our God in all that he is to us gives us that steady confidence in God and unshakable joy from God. But to get to this joy, we have to go through the journey. We have to walk the path of this psalm. Richard Phillips, one uh, preacher and writer, speaks of the indirectness of our search for joy. He rightly points out that we are not to worship joy. And that if we set out ultimately to find joy as our great goal and single-minded pursuit, we won't find it. Rather, we are to pursue God for who he is, knowing him and worshipping him. And as we do that, the fruit of that pursuit of God is joy. So God is the goal. We are to glorify him as our chief end. 
And in knowing him and in worshipping him, as we do that, we find joy. We know great joy as we enjoy him forever. And so as we come to verse 9, we arrive at what might seem to be the high point of the psalm. But it's not, because there are two more verses, aren't there? Verse 10 and verse 11, which make up the final leg of our journey, and it is much briefer. We're now at the Hale Roundabouts, almost there. We've done the main chunk of the journey, and so we come to the second half, I should say, of verse 9, and right through to verse 11, where we see that even death cannot block this journey to joy. Even death cannot block it. Now, over the last few weeks, we have, if you've been driving around Warwick and in Leamington, we have been navigating a great number of road closures, haven't we? <laughs> and they've been going on because our council has been preparing the roads for the arrival of the cyclists during the Commonwealth Games. And we're all thankful for the results. The roads are far smoother. And we're grateful for that. But the closures have blocked our journeys, and it's been tricky sometimes to get to your destination, hasn't it? And there is one thing that can bring an end to David's relationship with the Lord, potentially, and his joy in God, and that's the barrier of death itself. And that's why David moves in these last uh, few verses to speak about death, because if death is the end of our existence, or if it takes us to judgment because of our sin, then our joy can be snatched away and our journey can come, well, to an abrupt end. It's a barrier, isn't it? Which is why God teaches David about hope beyond the grave in verse 10. I was thankful for John Piper who uh, pointed this out as I was reading what he had written on this psalm. This is why death comes up here at the end. Because David needs to know about a hope that goes beyond the grave so that he can be confident that even death will not bring an end to this search for joy. Because he will not be abandoned, verse 10, he affirms, to the realm of the dead. His body is secure, and so that joy in God is not destroyed by death. And verse 10 is a wonderful verse of resurrection hope, isn't it? It's a great statement of what it means to have hope beyond the grave, because there we read, you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. David there is, is speaking of hope beyond death. And that hope of David is grounded on events that will happen a thousand years after David's death. Because how is it David can have confidence of life beyond death? Well, as Peter teaches in Acts chapter 2, this psalm is speaking in its fullest sense of Christ's experience, isn't it? This psalm is about David's journey, but even more fully, it's about the journey of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we think about Jesus' life, we see that his life follows a path of this psalm. Because it shows us that in his great trial and suffering, he sought refuge in his God and Father. And it shows us how the Lord showed favor to him so that he would live this psalm most fully and finally for us. And though he died, he was not abandoned by his father to corruption, but rather what happened? 
He was raised from death to life so that all who will believe in his sacrifice on the cross for our sins and will trust him by faith and so are joined in union to Jesus Christ, they too can know resurrection hope. Verse 10 can describe you this morning and you for all of eternity if you are trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone. So that even death, even that biggest of barriers that anyone could imagine, will not separate us from the joy of knowing God. Because what will happen in death, or what will happen in death, is that our joy will only be better and fuller. And that's what we find in verse 11, which is, well, the the real summit of the psalm, isn't it? That's where it reaches its final peak in that sense. Because when we die, our joy doesn't disappear. It grows. Because we know the joy of unhindered and unending presence of God. Sin is gone. Nothing to get in the way of that. And that means that we can know eternal pleasures that never end. On the 7th of September in 1850, seven British missionaries set sail from Liverpool to travel to Patagonia, which I learned this week is on the southern tip of South America. They had enough food for six months and great hopes of what they could do with God's help in pioneering evangelistic work there in Patagonia. But the trip ended in total failure. The natives were hostile, the climate was harsh, and the resupply ship failed to arrive until it was too late. And all seven missionaries, one by one, died of starvation. Richard Williams, one of their number, was a team surgeon. And when his body was recovered by the search party, they found his diary. On the final page, he wrote these words. Should anything prevent my ever adding to this diary, let my beloved ones at home rest assured that I was happy beyond all expression the night I wrote these lines and would not have exchanged situations with any man living. Let them also be assured that my hopes were full and blooming with immortality, that heaven and love and Christ, which mean one and the same thing, were my soul. That the hope of glory filled my whole heart with joy and gladness, and that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Richard had walked the journey of this psalm through the suffering, through the hardship, and through the disappointments in Patagonia. But at the end of it, he knew joy and he looked forward to even more to come. That's the journey to joy. That's the path that Jesus leads us on. Brothers and sisters, let's walk it with him.
Amen.